you for new life. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hello. It's good to see you today. Welcome to Crossroads. Man, it's so cool to be able to uh, start with, man, the testimony that Linda gave today. We believe that our personal testimony is our greatest witness to what God is doing both personally in us and collectively as a church. And man, what a beautiful picture of what our church is and who we and what we are all about. And so, man, just excited to be able to start that way. Before I get to the sermon today, I want to share with you some cool things that are happening at Crossroads and then also also at the same time ask something of you, all right? And so uh, for many of you, you know, if you've been a part of Crossroads, that our vision or part of our vision is to make disciples of the next generation. And oftentimes after we say that, we say our kids and our grandkids. And over the last couple of years, it has been really cool uh, to watch God bless our efforts in that. And um, to today, where we are larger as a church today than we were three years ago before COVID began. Like we are a bigger church now than, than three years ago, which is really cool. And all the blessing goes to God in that. Yeah, you can, you can clap onto that. Part of what's super cool is in the last eight weeks, listen to this, in the last eight weeks, our children's ministry has almost doubled uh, in terms of uh, kids coming, wanting to hear about Jesus, learning what it looks like to walk with Jesus and live with Jesus. And so we are excited because we are actually living out the vision of making disciples of of our next generation, our kids specifically, and our grandkids. And so I tell you all that today, not just to celebrate what God is doing, but also uh, to enlist your help because you can only imagine having that many kids, then the stress that is putting on our other volunteers and our systems in place for children's ministry. And so my ask of you today is if you like kids, you don't even have to love them, okay? If you like kids, uh, I would encourage you uh, to consider being a part of our kids' ministry team. We have a lot of opportunities for you from holding babies uh, to checking kids in to taking kids uh, to their classrooms. Like if steps are an important part of your fitness routine, we have more stairs than you'll be able to climb, all right? Like we can get you in there. Uh, We need help in the classrooms, teachers, people who do crafts. And so if any of that interests you and you want to help out in this way and serve uh, your church in this way, we're making it pretty easy. We're just using our text line. So the number is 720-513-1933. It's the same number that James mentioned a few minutes earlier. And you just need to text the word kids. And what will happen is, is that we'll take that and Denise McAnally, our great children's director here at Crossroads, um, she will contact you in the next couple of weeks and, well, really this week. And our hope is, is that we'll start doing some trainings and getting people uh, engaged through the summer to really be ready for the fall, even though we have some immediate need right now. And so if you're at all interested in that, simply text kids to the text line and uh, we'll get you going in serving your church in that way. All right. So with all of that said, I do want to welcome those of you joining us uh, online as well as Fort Lupton. And of course, all of you here, if you are new with us, man, I'm so glad that you're here and worshiping with us today. My name is Matt Manning and I get the privilege of serving as the senior pastor here at Crossroads. And as James said a few minutes ago, we are in week two of our series called Shifting Gears where we're discovering what it looks like to connect with God. Now, when I say connect with God, what I mean by that is all of the relational connectiveness and all that comes with that. And think of it not just in terms of God, but like in your relationship connections with like the regular people in your life and what that looks like, where you're emotionally involved, where you're intellectually engaged, where you're connecting with one another, where you're, where you're spending time together, knowing each other, and it's mutual right? Just like that, so it is too with God. And for some of you, you might think that that's a little weird to put into that category, but when it comes to God and connecting with God, what we mean by that is it's the emotional, intellectual, and relational closeness that every single one of us desires in our lives. 
And as we discovered last week, if you were here with us last week, is that most all of us actually, when it comes to connecting with God, that this is, this is a huge value of us for us. This is an important thing for us to be able to connect with God. And sadly, what we discovered and what we found out is that for so many of us, we don't feel like we're connecting with God the way that we want to or the way that we should. Like we all have stories of how we've tried and not really felt connected in that. And so we walked through and we said, you know, there's, there's moments where we go, man, I, I really want to connect with God. And so we, we start to pray, but, but we just... We just, our mind just kind of wanders, doesn't it? Or we sit down and we make time to read the Bible and it's like we can't remember anything that we're reading or we show up to worship and, and we want to, you know, worship with passion like we see other people do, but we get here and we don't feel anything. And it's not like we don't believe that there's a God. We do. We believe that there's a God who's out there. We believe that that God loves us and wants to be relational with us, that that God wants to connect with us, but after trying and trying and trying and falling short, we just go, maybe I don't, maybe I don't know what it looks like to connect with God. And the reality is, is that this isn't just like, you know, you know, an issue for a few of us. This is like all of us. And so we said, since this is such a widespread issue, why don't we just spend a few weeks talking about it and bring some clarity in order to help people connect with God uh, the God who loves you better in your life. And so last week I introduced a tool that's by Giant, uh, an, an organization called Giant, that was taught to us in our staff. And as a staff, we started using it. And this tool is called the Five Gears, and it's really all built on relationship and how our life flows. And so if you were here last week, this will be review. If you're new, I'm going to run through this quickly with you. But here's the Five Gears, and you can think of the Five Gears like shifting a stick vehicle, all right? So gear five is focus mode. That's when we are like in the zone. That's when, you know, we're working on something so intently and it takes your spouse like three or four of your names to get your attention. Like that's, that's gear five, all right? Gear four is task mode. This is where multitasking happens. This is the to-do list. In fact, most of our life we spend in gear four in the United States. So we are multitaskers, masters of the multitask, and that's where we spend a majority of our, of our time. Gear three is social mode. This is where small talk happens. It's when we get to friends. It's what happens in the lobby. Gear two is the connection mode. This is where depth happens in relationship. This is where intimacy takes place. Then gear one, which we talked about last week, is the recharge mode of rest and restoration. And then because every good car has a reverse, we have a reverse, which is the responsive mode, which is backing up, apologizing, what the Bible calls repentance. And what made this tool so helpful for us was how practical it was in each and every one of our lives. And we came to realize the fact is, is that we as people are meant to live in each of the gears every day of our lives. And that if we don't live in those gears, then there's actually something seriously missing uh, in our lives, missing that's going on in our lives. And so as we started to use this in our work relationships around the church, as well as in our family relationships, we started to realize that, hey, this is actually very biblical. And this isn't just about you know, our relationships with one another, but this actually applies to our relationship with God. And if you're here today and you're struggling in your relationship with God, could it be that you're in a gear and God's waiting for you to shift into a different gear to meet you there? Like if you're here today and you're longing for connection and what does it look like to connect with God, I'm here to tell you today that you can actually connect with God every second of every day by shifting into a different gear and meeting him there. That's what this series is all about. And our prayer is, is as we walk through this, that you would be given tangible ways to connect more deeply with the God who loves you. 
And so last week, we looked at year one, if you were here, which is all about rest and restoration in our lives. And the Bible calls that Sabbath. It calls it Sabbath. And the Sabbath understanding is where we cease from our work, our labors, our striving, and, and set aside time to actually just to take in the presence and the power of God. It's where we shed our own self-reliance and just peer upon, look upon the presence and know the, and acknowledge the presence of God. That's what Sabbath is all about. And so last week we said we can apply this every day in our lives. We talked about white space, if you remember that. And we also have the opportunity every week, as the Bible says, to set aside a day of week where we put aside our work and just enjoy the creation that God has given to us, that we enjoy life with God, whether that's going on a bike, a walk, spending time with your spouse, whatever it looks like for you to rest and find rest in the creation by enjoying God and in his presence. So that was all gear one. And so today we're getting into gear two, and gear two is the connection mode. It's about going deep uh, in our relationships. And before you think about this in light of our relationship with God, what I want you to do is actually think about it in light of your relationship with other people, that every single one of us, most likely, has somebody in our lives who is just good at connecting with people. Like just good at going deep with others. When I think about the people in my life who are like this, the first person that comes to mind actually is Mandy Avery, one of our great worship leaders here. Like you don't have to spend a lot of time with Mandy before you realize like, like we're just connecting. Like as you're talking to her pretty soon, you're just like bearing your soul to her because you realize like there's no judgment here. That she allows you the space simply to be you, like you to be you, that she's so comfortable to be with because there is never a doubt that she is, not, is for you. Like, like you always know that she's for you. And some people in our lives are just masters at shifting into gear two and living there. And when you're around people like that, that it, it fills you with, with like, you know, comfort and, and niceties and, and you know that you're connected and you feel, you feel full in your life. See, second gear is about getting out of the drive and ambition of our lives and learning to simply be. It's getting out of the drive and ambition of our lives and learning to simply be. It's where we stop being human doings and simply be human beings. It's where we learn to just be, where we just experience, you know, this, this experience the, what it feels like to be present in our lives. It's where we set up space in our lives to, to experience intimacy with one another, with each other. And the cool thing about this gear is it doesn't just apply to us as individuals and the people that we interact with, but it actually applies to our relationship to God as well. And if we can simply learn to shift into gear two every day when it comes to our relationship with God, then you will experience a sense of fullness in your life that you will experience a greater sense of, of security in your life, that you will experience what it means to be intimate with God, and you will know what it looks like to walk connected with God, to be full in God, to be like, he's walking with me in this life. And so what I want to do today is I want to cover with you what I believe to be the greatest practice that leads to connectedness in our relationship God, with God that we have been given and at the same time as I say that, I realize that it is also the most difficult for us. It's the most difficult for us. That I want to talk about shifting into gear two through the practice of prayer. Now, here's what I know as I say that. 
that if you're a believer and you've been walking with Jesus, there's nobody here who's a believer and going, wow, like I never thought of that before. You're the first pastor who has ever talked about this thing called prayer, right? Like, like I know that's a reality. And yet at the same time, I want to demonstrate something to you by asking you a question. You can just raise your hand up higher, right? And keep it there for a few moments. Here's the question. How many of you here today, when it comes to your prayer life, want your, want your prayers to be more deeply and more and to uh, and to be more consistent than what they currently are. Just raise your hand. Yeah, look around the room. Almost 100% of us have our hands raised. To be honest, that's an issue, isn't it? That I am looking at an awesome church full of faithful people, and almost 100% of us said that we wish that our prayer lives were deeper, more connected, more consistent than what they are right now. And if we know that this part of our lives could be better, that if we could just somehow shift into gear two with this practice, then we believe that we would experience deeper intimacy and deeper connectedness with God, and you would be right. You would be right. I never forget the time that Ruth Davis, um, our former prayer director, and I call her former prayer director because in 2020 she graduated to heaven, very excitedly actually, that she got to go to heaven. And uh, a few years ago, several years ago, she came into my office. It was 7 a.m. in the morning and we were meeting together just to pray through the week. And as she entered into the office, I asked her, I said, Ruth, how's your day going so far? And she said, oh, Matt, it's been wonderful. I've been up for the last three hours praying. I said, Ruth, it's 7 a.m. You got up at 4? And she said, yeah, it's been wonderful. I just wanted to make sure that I had my time with Jesus today. <laughs> like we look at that and go, wow. Now, as we jump into this today, as we get into this, know that my intention today is not like a drive-by guilting, all right? Like I'm not, I don't want to shame you into this. Like get your tired butt out of bed at 4 a.m. and meet with Jesus. It's not about that, all right? That's not what this is. That I want to approach this in such a way that you are both inspired. You walk away tangibly knowing what it looks like to enter into this practice of prayer and that we actually model it today. So that's, that's where we're going today. That's what we're doing. And I want to do this by looking at the life of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 1 is where we'll be. If not, it's going to be on the screen for us. But when it comes to Mark chapter 1, let me kind of set the stage for you. Because Mark chapter 1, verse 35, the verse that we're going to be looking at, happens on a Sunday. Now this is an important detail because Sunday in Jewish culture happened after the Sabbath. That if you remember, Sabbath was from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's when they practiced Sabbath. And what we're told in the Gospel of Mark is that the Sabbath that preceded this verse was actually a pretty busy ministry day for Jesus. Like Jesus is hanging out in the city of uh, Capernaum, and he shows up to a synagogue to the delight and the excitement of people to give a message. And so he preaches in the synagogue and then after he gets done at the synagogue, like we all do, he goes out for like after church dinner. And so he joins Peter and Andrew, two of his disciples, and they go to Peter and Andrew's home to eat uh, after church dinner together. And as Jesus arrives there, he finds out that Peter's mother-in-law is like gravely ill. Like she is sick, she is on the verge of death. And so Jesus walks into her room, he looks at her, he begins to pray for her in this woman who's on the verge of taking her last breath, all of a sudden is completely and wholly healed to the dismay of Peter. I just made that second part up, right? I'm sure, I'm sure that Peter loved his mother-in-law like all you guys love your mother-in-law, right? So anyways, Peter jumps out of bed, jumps out of bed, 
or not Peter, Peter's mother-in-law jumps out of bed. A party happens and they spend the afternoon, you know, in celebration of what Jesus has did. And, and as the afternoon turns into evening, you know, they're cleaning up from the party, they're cleaning the dishes, and there's a knock at Peter's door. And Peter goes over to the door and he opens the door and what he sees astonishes him and he walks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, um, you got to go to the door. There's somebody for you. And so Jesus walks to the door. He opens the door and it's not just a someone, it's the entire city that's lined up to talk to Jesus. And so Jesus steps out and he begins to have the conversations with the people. And he begins to pray with them, healing those who are ill, even uh, freeing some from demon oppression. And after what had to be a long night as Jesus, you know, crawls into bed and as his head hits the pillow, uncertainly there is a wave of exhaustion that flows over him as he closes his eyes. Now, if this was me the next morning, I would sleep in. This is what I did after Easter, right? Like Easter's big ministry day. We, call time was 5 a.m. here. I preached a billion times, had a lot of conversations, a lot of ministry uh, happened on Easter. Monday morning, I slept in and I did not feel bad at it at all, right? Like, like I enjoyed that rest, but not Jesus. Here's the story. Mark chapter one, verse 35. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark outside, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place and there he what? He prayed, he prayed. I mean, just think about this for a moment, that connection with his father, he held so greatly, it was such a, a great value, he held it so dearly that it mattered so deeply to him that he rose early enough to have some uninterrupted gear to time to just linger with the father. And it's a good thing that he did because Peter shows up kind of in a hurried, and he shows up with this like urgent news that the whole city is gathering again, that everybody in the city is looking for Jesus. They want him to deliver like on the amazing and on the, on the miraculous again. And if we look through all the gospels, like when it comes to the miraculous and the powerful Jesus, like, like Jesus delivered, didn't he? Like we have story after story after story of Jesus doing amazing and really cool things. I mean, here's just a couple of them. Like one story we're told where Jesus shows up to his best friend Lazarus's like grave. Like Lazarus is in the grave. Like he is dead. And Jesus shows up and he prays over the grave. And it's not even, doesn't even seem that hard to him. It's a three word prayer. He looks at the grave and he says, Lazarus, get up. And mummified Lazarus comes like walking out in his grave clothes, right? Like sauntering out of the grave. I mean, just an amazing moment. I would have loved to have been there. Or you have another moment of, maybe you remember where Jesus is like hanging out in, in the boat with the disciples and he falls asleep probably because he's exhausted from another day of ministry and, and he's sleeping in the boat and all of a sudden the storm moves in and all of the disciples who grew up on the water, they start freaking out. And they're like, man, this storm is going to kill us. Like we're all going to die. And they walk over to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, don't you care about us? As they're like shaking him to wake him up. They're like, we're all going to die. And Jesus like stands up, you know, he's like, three word prayer, storm be still. And the whole place just quiets. Or you have the story of Jesus showing up on the hillside and we're told 5,000 people gather on that day. And they're listening to Jesus teach and preach and the afternoon turns into the evening. And one of the disciples comes up to Jesus like, hey, Jesus, you're going to have to let him go. Like these guys, they're getting hungry. Some of them are hangry. And then you have another disciple who's found a kid with a Chick-fil-A sandwich and french fries. He's like, can you just help? Jesus is like, sure. And everybody eats Chick-fil-A sandwiches and they're all full and happy, right? And we just look at these and like, these are amazing stories. Like, like Jesus delivered time and time again. He does the miraculous and the amazing. And what's so fascinating to me, what's so crazy, is not one time 
In all of the Gospels, you can look this up. Not one time did the disciples say, hey, Jesus, can you teach us to do one of those things? Like, none of the disciples ever come up to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, like that zombie apocalypse thing that you did with Lazarus? Pretty cool party trick. Would you teach us? Like, we never have that. Like, Peter never shows up to Jesus like, hey, Jesus, <laughs> we all love Chick-fil-A sandwiches. If you could teach us how to turn one to two, we're taking over the world, man. Like, like never. Like, that never happens. But what we do have, what's so fascinating, is that the only time the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something, it's about prayer. The only time that we ever see the disciples ask Jesus something, Jesus, would you teach us, would you teach us? We want to learn something. The only thing it is, is prayer, which is so interesting to me because when it comes to the disciples, like these were guys who knew how to pray. I mean, every little Jewish boy and little Jewish girl was taught how to pray. I mean, they were all taught a couple of prayers. The first one was the Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your might, with all your strength. That was the first one. Every little Jewish boy and little Jewish girl was taught that prayer. The second one is what we call the Amidah. The way that I remember it is Pastor Chris Amidah. Like, that's an easy one for you, all right? So, so we have that. And it was a prayer that was said three times a day, and it was consisted of 18 blessings. Like, these were guys who knew how to pray. And yet, when they watched Jesus pray, like, it was different. Like, things happened different. Like, when Jesus prayed, people rose from the grave. When Jesus prayed, people were healed. When Jesus prayed, like those who were broken were set free. When Jesus prayed, those who were possessed by demons were all of a sudden free from that oppression. Like when Jesus prayed, things happened. And when he prayed, the disciples noticed that there was like this connection with God. Like it was like he was actually talking to God the Father. And it had to be Peter sitting around the campfire one night going, boys, I don't think we're doing it right. I think we're missing something. And as Jesus is praying off in the distance, he's like, hey, Jesus, come over here. Would, would you teach us what it looks like to pray? And the only thing that I can think of, the only reason that they would, that they would ask that question is because when they watched the rhythm of Jesus' life, they saw so clearly the connectedness of his life to the Father, and they believed that it was his prayer life that powered all of the dynamic, miracle, powerful stuff that he had going on in his life. And they thought to themselves that if we could learn to pray like Jesus prayed, then we could walk in that same kind of power too. And if you're here today and you see how Jesus modeled gear two, walking faithfully in prayer, and you go, man, that's something that I want in my life. Like, I want that kind of deep connection with God the way that Jesus had it, and I want to walk in the power of the Spirit like Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit, then we need to make a commitment to the priority of prayer. That there is nothing more powerful, there is nothing more sacred, there is no deeper experience, nothing more intimate than walking in the gift of prayer that God gives to us. And so here's the question that I have for you. If we know that prayer is so important, why is it that we find it so difficult? I mean, every single one of us raised our hands. And we said, we wish our prayer lives could be deeper. We wish that they would be more consistent. Like every single one of us raised our hand. Why is that? Why is it that we find something so simple like prayer so difficult to put into our lives? I want to answer that by looking at two passages of scripture, one in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel and the other one in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. 
First off, the book of Daniel. That in the Old Testament, we have this book that's written about a guy named Daniel, and he was a faithful, faithful dude. Like Daniel was part of the exile to Babylon. If you don't know the story, in 605 BC, that's 600 years before Jesus, uh, Babylon, a great world empire, come in, comes in and crushes Judah. They crush Israel. And what the Babylonians, Babylonians would do is they would take the people, like the elites and the important people, and they would take them from their city and they would exile them to the capital of Babylon. And there what they would do is they would indoctrinate the people into the ways of the Babylonians. It was a way to crush cultures. It was, it was culture crushing. You would learn the ways of the Babylonians and then you'd be shipped back and your culture would be over. That's what the Babylonians did. That's how they ruled. And so Daniel is one of those guys who's been taken to Babylon. And every day, what we find Daniel doing is that he would open his windows that pointed towards Jerusalem. He would humble himself. He would get on his knees and he would pray. Really, he would plead for his people. He would say, God, would you deliver my people? Would you bring salvation? Would you free them from this exile that we have in Babylon? Would you bring us home? So every day he's praying that prayer. And one day as he's on his knees, pointed to Jerusalem, praying this prayer, an angel shows up. And here's what happens. Chapter 10, verse 12. Then the angel said to me, fear not, because anytime an angel shows up, that's what they say because they are scary. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdoms of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, next slide there, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, this is a crazy, crazy story. What you have is Daniel humbling himself. He's praying towards Jerusalem. He's praying for the deliverance of his people, pleading with God for him to come through. And in this passage, for just a moment, we have the curtains of our world pulled back. For just a moment, we're able to peer into the heavenlies. We're able to peer into the spiritual realm. See, the kings of Persia here are not men. They're demons. What's being talked about here is territorial demons. And this angel says that there's these demons out there and that God had sent this angel to come see Daniel in order to bring encouragement and to strengthen him in his prayer, to bring hope to him. And so this angel is on this mission from God to visit Daniel to bring hope. And on the way, these territorial demons stop him. They capture him. They lock him up. That's what's going on here. And the angel says that it got so bad that Michael was sent in. He's like the big boy angel, all right? And he had to go all Rip Wheeler on these demons in order to free this angel so that he could get to Daniel. Crazy story. And I know for some of you, you're thinking, oh crap, Pastor Matt's jumped the shark, we're going charismatic. All right, before you go there, I just wanna remind you that we're a church that treats the Bible like we believe it, that we take honestly what the Bible has to say. And what the Bible is pointing out to us here, more than angelology or demonology is this, is that the reason that prayer is so difficult is because it's spiritual warfare. That the reason that prayer is so difficult is because it is spiritual warfare. That when you enter into the practice of prayer, you are initializing an assault on the heavenlies. That's what you're doing. We don't think about it that way, but that's exactly what we're doing. And if you are here today and you believe that there really is an enemy, 
then your prayer life is an assault on his agenda and on him personally. And if you really believe that there's an enemy and your prayer is an assault on his agenda, then you better believe that he will do whatever he can to distract you from entering in to that type of prayer. And this isn't the only passage. This isn't the only passage where this is happening. But Daniel here, it's exactly what's happening in Daniel's prayer. That, that Daniel is, is praying towards Jerusalem. He's on his knees. He's humbling himself. That God's sending an angel to encourage him. The demons step in. There's a fight in the heavenlies over this prayer. Eventually, the angel makes it there to encourage David. Like I said, this isn't the only place for some of you. You may go, the Old Testament's a little weird. What about the New Testament? Well, that's where we go to Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, one of our favorite passages as Christians is all about putting on the armor of God. I mean, we love this stuff, right? Particularly if you're a guy, like, like you love this stuff. You put on the armor of God, and typically when we're reading through Ephesians chapter 6, we stop after being given the sword of the Spirit, right? That's, a, that's the, the Bible. Like, we're ready to fight. We're ready to fight. That's where we stop. The whole reason that we're to put on the armor of God is to get into the fight, not to watch the fight, but to get into the fights. And in verse 18, we're told by Paul what the fight is. And he says this. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit. This is us getting in the fight. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul says the reason that we're in the fight is because the enemy that does exist, that he is not of blood. He is not of flesh. He is not of this world's that there is an enemy and you need to be ready to fight. And the fight is in the heavenlies when you get on your knees humbling yourself and pray. See, here's the reality of our lives, that when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we take the collective of the Bible, here's what we know, that life is war, the enemy is awesome, and you don't stand a chance without being connected to God. That life is war, the enemy is awesome, and you don't stand a chance without being connected to God. See, when it comes to this gear too, it's what makes it so important and at the same time why we find it so difficult. A few years ago, I heard a pastor I know named Bill share a story about a guy named Tom, that Tom was a, a young guy, kind of an up-and-coming guy in the ad world, and he was an ad exec. And um, he's making his way through the marketing world and through Bill's church actually comes to faith. Like he becomes a believer in Jesus. And a short time after he becomes a believer in Jesus, he comes to Bill and, and he tells Bill, he goes, man, like I'm, excuse me, I'm having a really hard time connecting with, with God. He goes, man, I, I have a job that demands a lot out of me. I work a lot of hours and a lot of long hours. I have to travel into the city. The commute is awful. The traffic is awful. It's a high pressure job and I'm just struggling. I just, I just don't have a lot of time to connect with God. He said, Bill, I, I live in a different world than you do. I just don't have time to, to sit around and, and to meet with God. And Bill looked at him and he said, like, like, I found in my experience that we make a priority, that we make time for what we value. The thing that we pray, place high value on, we do, and the things we don't, we won't. He goes, in my life, I've just chosen that God is one of those high priorities to make time in my life for he says, Tom, you can do it however you want. You, you can go about this life however you want, but if God is important to you as you say it is, that you will figure out how to make time in your life for him. 
Well, Tom walks away from that experience a little bit agitated, as you can imagine, but he starts to ponder it. And a few months later, he invites Bill over to his house for some dinner. And as Bill comes to the door, Tom, you know, welcomes him into the house. And then he ushers him in to this room and he shares with him this room that has a rocking chair sitting in it. He said, Bill, you remember a few months ago when we had the conversation about my struggles of connecting with God? He said, after that conversation, I was a little agitated, but I decided that I would think on it and ponder it. He goes, I really love rocking chairs. He said, so I went out and I bought the nicest rocking chair I could find. And he said, I put it in a, in a room where I can look out into my backyard that I just love. And he said, every day I just made a commitment to wake up 30 minutes early to sit in the chair. And when I do, I just open the scriptures. I pray that God would help me understand what's in them. I journal a little bit about it. And then I pray. It's my time to deeply connect with God. Well, Bill, fascinated by what he was seeing, he asked the question, well, how's time in the chair going? And his wife yells from the other room as she's like making dinner. She goes, it's going great. Like he's a changed man. Like the chair has changed him. That he's kinder, he's gentler, he's a better husband. He's a better father. Like his time that he spends with God in the chair, it's changing his life. He's changing his life. Well, eventually, Tom leaves his high-powered marketing job, and he goes and he works for Bill's church for less pay. And for years, he works in this church, and then he hears God speak to him, and he decides that he needs to leave Bill's church, and he moves to Colorado. He becomes bivocational, working back in the business world so that he can be a bivocational pastor and plant a church here in Colorado. Well, decades later, Tom's life eventually ends because of cancer. And at his funeral, his wife stands up and speaks, and she says to everybody there at the funeral, she said, Tom's life changed in that chair. That every day he sat and he met in that chair, he met God in that chair, and it changed his entire life. And she shared that her hope would be that one day that she would take this chair, his rocking chair, and that he would give it to his kids and eventually his grandkids. And her prayer is, is that one day the rocking chair would change a life like it did Tom's. Here's my question for you. When is your time with dad in the chair? When do you have those moments in your day where you connect at a deep and intimate level with God? That we have the opportunity every single day to meet with the God of the universe who loves us. Don't miss your opportunity in that. We're gonna finish up this time, our time together, a little bit differently than we normally do. Typically at this time, I share the gospel, pray, we go to communion, we take communion together, but, but we're gonna do it a little bit differently today. That we don't wanna just talk about prayer, we actually wanna model what this looks like in a way that you can incorporate this into your life. So I've invited the team to come out. We're gonna sing a song. You can stay seated as we sing. We're gonna sing a song to prepare our hearts. And then there's gonna be a spot in the music where the music's gonna play quietly. And I'm just gonna lead you in a prayer that Christians have been praying for decades, if not more than that, centuries, called the Acts Prayer. And we're just gonna practice what it looks like to sit at the feet of Jesus, to connect with God today. And so Brad, go ahead and lead us together.
old things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant grace remains the cornerstone. The things that we thought were dead are breathing in life again. You cause your sun to shine on darkest nights. For all that you've done, we will pour out our lives. This will be our anthem song Jesus we love you oh how we love you you are the one our our hearts adore the hopeless the hope have found their hope. The orphans now have a home. All that was lost has found its place in you. You lift our weary you make us strong instead you took these rags and you made us beautiful for all that you've done we will pour out our lives this will be our anthem song Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. Yeah. You are the one our, our hearts adore. Jesus, we shift into gear two, and we're going to walk through this prayer called Acts. Each letter just stands for a way to walk through prayer. The first part of Acts, the A, stands for adoration. When we see Jesus teach his disciples to pray, he starts with, our Father, 
who is in heaven, hallowed, great, worthy, respectful is your name. That when we come to God in prayer, we begin by just adoring who he is and calling it out to him. And so I'm just gonna give you a minute to bow your heads and to do that now. C stands for confession. Again, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he taught them to say, forgive us our sins as, as you forgive those who have sinned against us. And God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That when it comes to confession, it's our, our chance to confess our sins, to repent of those sins. If, if you're new here today, and you're not a believer, that this is your opportunity to bring your wrongs, those mistakes to the foot of the cross, maybe for the first time, and to pray that God would forgive you in them. Take a moment. stands for thanksgiving. Paul writes to us in Romans 1 that the beginning of sin, the beginningness of all the brokenness that we experience in this world is when we failed as a people to give thanks to God. And so what I want you to do is think of all the blessings that you have in your life, all of the good things that God has brought your way. And I want you to take a moment just to give thanks to the God who blesses. final part of the prayer is the S, which stands for supplication. That's just a fancy way of of saying to ask. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he said at some point, go, God, will you give us our daily bread? Will you provide for us? And so this is our opportunity, having adored God, confessing, giving thanks, to come to him with our desires, our anxieties, our worries, and to place them with him. And so take a moment to do that. Having prayed and settled our hearts in the God who love us, we're reminded of why we even have opportunity 
to come before the throne of an almighty God and to pray to him, to be connected with him. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. Where Jesus' body was broken, where his blood was spilt, so that we might have life everlasting. And so today as a church, we remember that and we celebrate the cross of Jesus by taking the bread together. And with the cup, as we drink, reminding us that our salvation is ours. As we continue, I'm gonna ask you to stand as we continue to sing the adoration of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Mm -hmm.